0: back in my career sometimes people would stereotype an individual from the northeast or new york versus individuals from the southern part of the country there would be an assumption that the world moves slower or faster in each of these areas maybe because people speak quickly or not quickly what i found is that even on a global basis and you may be shipping into 150 countries the demand is always there. I suspect Amazon had a lot to do with that. I think that there's more of an Amazon culture in the world than we think.
1: Welcome to the Promo Kitchen podcast. In our continuing exploration of mergers and acquisitions, we are very honored to have this spectacular guest with us today. We have Joanne Lance, who is president and CEO of Geiger. So welcome, Joanne. Well, thank you, Kate. I'm thrilled to be here today. We're really excited. Myself, Kate Plummer from Claremont, and Andrea Pereira from Rocket Science Branding, because we've been following and talking to different people on all levels of the mergers and acquisitions. And you're the big honcho at Geiger. We're just going to give you that title. And we wanted to talk to you about the big picture, but why don't you just give us the starting point for those who
0: aren't familiar with you, Tell us how you got started and what your role is at Geiger. Well, it's pretty simple. I have been at Geiger my entire adult business career. After I graduated from college, I took the very first job that came my way without ever any intention of staying there. Just needed that first job on my resume, and I happened to end up at Geiger. I fell in love with people and the industry and the opportunities and I never left. So I started literally from the bottom up, started in the accounts payable department and managed to work in a whole bunch of different positions in the company until now. As you mentioned, I'm the president of the organization. That's spectacular. It's an easy one. You didn't have a roundabout
1: way of getting here.
0: (laughs) No, I just never left. And as most people who are in the industry and are listening to this, this is an industry that it seems like nobody ever wants to leave this place. We might leave a company now and then, but we don't leave the industry.
1: I've heard it described as Hotel California, and I can't tell if that's a good thing or a bad thing some days.
0: I'll have to think about that one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The amazing thing about Geiger is that you're a family company. I've read interviews with you where people just assume you're a Geiger and it is a family company, but you acquire a lot of family companies. So when you're Bringing in a new distributor, what do you aim to identify in them? Like, what do you think of through that acquisition process?
0: You're absolutely right, Kate. We are a family business and actually have been acquiring companies in the history books. I think our first acquisition was back in 1903. Thank God it wasn't there back then. But even in the last 50 or 60 years, we continued to acquire companies. And there are companies that we acquired in the 50s whose grandchildren still remain with the organization through today. So what do we look at? We look for great people who have a great book of clients. And it's as simple as that. If individuals mesh with our culture, which is we're a kind culture, honest, ethical culture, who treat, hopefully, individuals the same way we would want to be treated and who are professional and have great clientele, That is the bottom line of what we're looking for when we merge with a business. We also actually are very interested in how they see the future themselves, as well as even their families. Do their families want to stay in the business? And if so, we embrace that because that's a continuation of that family business.
1: And when you bring them in, it can't be easy with the family business. There's got to be a point where they figure out that. The next generation isn't going to take it to the next level or doesn't want to take it on. Is bringing in a family business different than a sole entrepreneur?
0: It is. I think of Elliot sales and Frank Elliott, by the way, I think it's his birthday today. So happy birthday, Frank. And his was a fourth generation business where his two daughters were still working in the business. And by the way, they joined us like 10, 15 years ago and they still work in the business. And in Frank's case, both of his daughters said that they did not want to run the business. It was their personal choice, even though they loved the industry. So when Frank sold his business to us, it was with, how can I continue this company, continue this business, have my daughters remain in the business, but they don't want to run the business. And so they both are still with us to this day. Sometimes sole proprietorships are individuals And there's never a sole proprietorship who is only by themselves in this business. They always have people around them supporting them in one way or the other. They most often want to stay in the industry and want to continue to do what they do best and find a way for their colleagues also to stay within the business because that's part of their secret sauce for success. We don't want to take that ingredient out of the sauce. We want to make sure that we support them in that endeavor. Very rarely do we see somebody actually just want to sell and walk away. It does happen, but it's pretty rare.
2: Do you ever have the flip side, Joanne, where someone says, I really enjoy operations and processes or gosh, I missed the beginning of my career when I worked in the accounting department and the sales thing, I happened to be lucky or I had another sales rep it worked out great, but I want to move on from that and just get back to doing accounting or operations, or people management. Do you ever have
0: that opportunity? We've seen that, but it's pretty rare. It's funny, the people management is the one that people seem to like the least, and the sales that people like the most. The one exception is sometimes there are these technology-based firms that have a different sales model, and then they may choose to remain, but in that same role of technology-based.
2: That's so interesting. I would not normally think of technology-based firms merging within this industry. We always hear about some Silicon Valley giant startup and how they're changing everything. And there's this giant dichotomy between them and the family people-based operations. How do you marry those two together? Because it would seem then like the cultures are
0: so opposite sides of the spectrum. I think you'd be surprised how the cultures are actually similar because. It's a matter of how you go to market. So if you go to market on e-com versus you go to market on a consultative basis, they're both looking at the same thing, which is customer satisfaction, customer experience. It's just the medium and how they deliver it that's different. So in both cases, they're looking at that customer experience, but are just looking at it through a different lens. Interesting.
1: Geiger, in the past... Several years has been expanding internationally where you have a UK and Europe and more. How has that been? Has that been different than acquisitions in the US? Like, in what ways? And then just looking at the companies as well. I imagine there's other things to keep in mind than just true culture fit.
0: Or is it just still culture fit? That's the one thing you're looking for. When we worked with UK company, the similarities are more consistent than one would think. First of all, there are companies all over this world that are doing exactly what we're doing, which is bringing great brand merchandising and marketing to their clients. The difference tends to be two things. One is culture. We have to understand what their culture, their country culture is. There is company culture and country culture. The UK is very similar, much like Canada. Country culture, but there are some slight differences. You'll see those in holidays often, how they celebrate holidays. Company culture, it's almost always the same, and that's that fit. The big difference are tax laws, e commerce laws, the sustainability rules. That tends to be the difference. Logistics might be different. And then finally, taxes are different. So you have to understand how to do business in that country consistent with their laws. Even their employment laws are different. And so that's the big learning curve is to make sure that you're operating consistently within their laws. Right now, we're looking to expand in Germany and we're following very similar processes in Germany as we have and do in the U.S., to find the right match for a distributorship. We're working with a search firm who understands what we're looking for. In the US, we work with certified marketing. In fact, most of the best businesses do work with certified marketing and have been for years. We have a similar firm that we've found in Germany, and they're helping us try to find that right match for us as we speak. I'm actually
1: just curious, what country culture things have you found the most jarring or the most kind of like,
0: huh? Well, certainly when we start using our language in the U.S., uh, football, how can it (laughs) be different than in the U.S. or even Canada when we say football and when we speak with our colleagues in the U.K. or in Asia? Football, you know, you can't use all of these analogies. So that's like probably the easiest one to understand. But there might be some other similar things for what they refer to as a bank holiday versus what we refer to a bank holiday. I was a little taken aback when what we call a program here in the U.S. or in North America, they call a scheme. And so the word scheme has a little bit of an off connotation in the U.S. Scheme seems almost like sneaky. Yeah. Scheme means program or total care in our country means we're going to take totally great care of you where total care is their health care system. And so we're speaking about totally, they're thinking healthcare, we're thinking, I'm going to take care of you. That's one of many, many examples.
2: What about, Joanne, when you have a U.S.-driven project and it's a global rollout, how do you communicate then with those offices and help folks understand that there are different work styles? I think we mentioned this in a previous conversation where There's this meme going around the internet right now, someone in the U.S. saying, I'm so sorry, I'm out for kidney surgery. Just only the 20 minutes that I'm on the operating table, I won't respond, but you can text, you can call. I'll be back in two hours. And then, you know, someone else in another country is saying, I'm gone for three weeks backpacking. I'll let you know when I'm back. That's it, right? How do you marry those cultures when someone, especially a U.S.-driven project, is expecting a response within... Two hours and we can totally deliver next week. Not a problem. Easy peasy.
0: I saw that meme, and there's a little bit of stereotyping that potentially happens or unconscious bias that happens with those memes. If I think back in my career, sometimes people would stereotype an individual from the Northeast or New York versus individuals from the southern part of the country. There would be an assumption that the world moves slower or faster in each of these areas maybe because people speak quickly or not quickly. What I found is that even on a global basis, and you may be shipping into 150 countries, the demand is always there. I suspect Amazon had a lot to do with that. I think that there's more of an Amazon culture in the world than we think. Now, yes, there is a different perspective of time off, in unplugging, but I have yet to run into anybody internationally that completely shuts down or unplugs. At least in this industry, they all seem to stay connected in terms of balancing. So I could be wrong, but I think there's a little bit of stereotyping and unconscious bias with that meme and how people think. Interesting. We work with a SIG,
1: which is a Swiss company and. In- I have projects going on where it's like working with China, Switzerland, Canada and the US and the US is always the one answering me at one AM and it's just sort of like, Are you people doing sleeping?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is true, Kate. And I you know, I think you're right about that. So there is a little bit of that as well. And actually when you get around holidays, different religious holidays, this certainly is the case where perhaps the US doesn't even stop for a moment to breathe than other countries do. But for the most part, I think everybody is pretty responsive from what I've seen.
1: It is really interesting sort of seeing the different ones. For example, like with Switzerland, I always ask, just give me timelines of when I can expect an answer. Because the default for North America is 24 hours. Like by the time I've asked the question, I'm going to get an answer within 24 hours. Whereas I find whenever I work with European partners, it's a different attitude towards when they'll answer you, still prompt, but not the clock is ticking the minute you send it. So <laughs> I do find that interesting. And I wonder in expanding out as you go to different countries, when you think about that, you think about the company and the country culture, how do you onboard a new company onto the Geiger world and sort of have them adapt to you in a way?
0: Onboarding in any acquisition, is such a difficult, important step, and people forget about that. On onboarding, we have to onboard ourselves to this firm as well as they onboard to our firm. Have you heard the frame not invented here? We have to make sure that not the only great ideas out there are those that are invented here. And so when we onboard a company we have to really understand what do they do how do they do it why are they successful and make sure that we continue those great ideas and perhaps even adapt some of our processes At the same time it is constant communication we will have these weekly calls where we have everyone from different disciplines involved after we initially acquire a business those calls will last two hours and we go through every single thing that's happened over the week. And we continue those calls. There's no set limit or end date until the meetings go about five or 10 minutes. And everyone says, yep, yeah, we're all set. We have it. No questions. We now know what to do. Sometimes it takes six weeks. Other times it might take two years to onboard a company completely. It depends on the complexity of the business.
1: I remember years ago, I was listening to a presentation from you and you said, you're just like, if you've decided to sell, this process is going to last you three to five years. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this in our other podcast, that idea of it's going to take longer than you think. So to the people out there who are ready to sell, what are you finding that are the factors that are motivating them? Are they looking to have something fast or are people understanding that? This is something that will take years for them.
0: There are two parts to your question. One is I see acquisitions as a three-step process. Acquisition, implementation, integration. And implementation is that middle step where it might take three months or it might take two years because of contractual arrangements that they may have with their clients or because of technical. Integration is when we're truly integrated and we feel like one company. And that's that final step where it's not that we are integrated, or they're integrated; is we integrate together, recognizing in the U.S. that we might have a more similar country culture, or in other countries, different country cultures, and we integrate together. So that's the first step. For the seller, they really sell has to identify why am I selling my business. Is it because I have these opportunities to expand my business and the technology investments are such that I can't make all those technology investments? Or am I selling this business because I have the opportunity to grow and the buyer can provide that skill set that you need to match for your opportunity to grow? Or am I just selling this business because I want to see the business continue to thrive? And I want to step back a little bit and just focus on one specific area. Those are three very different reasons to sell the business. And if you know in advance why the seller wants to sell their business and make sure that we can match that, then hopefully they'll only have one regret. And that regret is, I should have done it sooner. If we can get a seller to say that after three years, because it really has led three years, because that's when you sort of have problems and you work through those problems. If they can say that that's my one regret, I should have done it earlier. Then you know that you've had a great acquisition and a great merger.
2: Thinking about family businesses and the succession plan that oftentimes folks think they have but they don't, Joanne. This is an out there question for you that I'm just so curious about. Do you ever have? businesses come in and the proprietor at the time says, my child is going to take over, my nephew or niece is going to take over. And the reality is, is they need a reality check during that process with you. Actually, I think this is a better path for you. You should still join the Geiger family, but not in the way that you'd initially intended. Do you ever have
0: that? And what are the signs for that? I don't think I've ever had the conversation with a seller that their family member might be better fit in a different role than what they were expecting. My conversations tend to be, what is your family member best at? Or have that conversation with that family member and say, what is it you really want to do and why? And what I've seen happen is it skip a generation where a seller says, I really think my child, which is, by the way, an adult, would be great, et cetera, one, two, three, and continuing on. And then you find out, no, they really don't want to stay in the business. But their niece, nephew, grandchild does. So it might be a different family member than what they originally anticipate or expect. And that gets all worked out. It gets worked out in due diligence. It gets worked out in our conversations. We'll have conversations with that family member. It just somehow seems to flow. And that's the important part of doing your homework in advance. Has anything surprised you about something where you just
1: thought you were getting company A and it turned out to be a company B?
0: Sure. We've made mistakes. That surprises me (laughs) because you always want to work well uh, and you learn from those mistakes. But yes, that's surprised me. Or sometimes in due diligence. We and the owner find out that the company operations are not what they think they are or there might be something else happening in within the organization that they don't know and that surprised both of us and that's been unearthed sometimes in due diligence and there's always the wonderful delightful surprises when the owners say I think I'm going to retire in three years or four years and i'm selling my business and i want to transition it to another individual and find the right match and they decide that they don't want to retire and then they stay on for 10 12 15 years even longer that's been the most delightful surprise and that happens more often than you think that's the hotel california part of it (laughs) exactly (laughs) it's because sometimes those things that are the greatest headaches if those go away Then all of a sudden, you find the joy of what brought you into this industry back again. That makes a lot of sense. Speaking of the future, do you think that industry
2: firms will start to acquire companies not within the promo industry traditionally to expand their offerings like digital advertising or web design,
0: awards and incentives that are just not traditional promo? I do. And I think because in promo and in merchandising, we need different offerings and skill sets than we did before. Getting back to that technology analogy, I can see firms either acquiring design firms or perhaps acquiring a firm because they may have a certain technology that one needs to shore up their offering or expand their offering. Probably one of the most difficult things that's also so visible these days is the issue of security. And firms that might have these great online stores and think that they have the right controls for security, and they may find when their clients do an audit of their systems, because that happens and our clients audit your systems, that you might not be PCI compliant or as safe as you think. And then you have to find a way to quickly acquire that skill set. You might buy another company that has that skill set just so that way you can make sure that you merge it into your business. Or sell. You know, it's the flip side, do you buy or do you sell? Mm-hmm. And people are thinking in both ways in both cases. That kind
1: of goes into like another question we have that we've been discussing with everyone we've talked to is with companies like Geiger kind of acquiring a lot of smaller ones and a lot of larger ones and these big companies growing. Do you think that there's still space in the industry for small companies when there's requirements like cybersecurity, where a huge investment is needed. Do you think there's still space for people to be niche and nimble and small?
0: You know, I think about this all the time, Kate. Are we on the precipice where there's only going to be very large companies and small companies, or is there room for middle ground? And are we headed down the roll and the road perhaps of I hate to say this, but funeral homes or labs where you see more and more of these consolidated, larger offerings and fewer of the independents. Or newspapers. Mm -hmm. You know, remember all the small newspapers, all these independent newspapers, and it seems like for them to survive, they need to consolidate. I don't know if we're on the precipice of that shift and change. I hope we're not. I think there's room for lots of small, Businesses and small entrepreneurs to continue to flourish. Just like industry as a whole, small business really becomes the foundation of innovation and people, and they bring a vitality to industry. And I hope that that stays the same in ours. At the same time, clients, global demands, and client demands are asking for more. They want integrated punch-out catalogs and websites. They are absolutely demanding that we provide a secure system so somebody doesn't backdoor into their system and put them at risk. Insurance companies, banks, technology firms, they're all our clients, and they're the ones that are absolutely demanding this service. To do so, you need to be able to have enough bulk to invest in the proper protocols. And even then, as we learned from Alpha Broder, you might be the biggest company there is, and still you're only as strong as your weakest link within your organization. It's kind of a scary thing. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps that might end up driving us and our industry in the same way as others. I just hope it doesn't happen too quickly. What about with affiliates? That
2: really makes me wonder, too. Like, while we may have smaller firms that are able to keep up with PCI and other security compliances, do you think that we'll still be able to have affiliates within larger organizations like Geiger, Halo, Boundless, et cetera, that can fall under the umbrella, but then have their own identity and their own
0: name? I honestly think, Andrea, that affiliates are the best of both worlds. I love it because it gives you the access to the technology, the systems, the funding, the finance, the importing, the exporting, all of those things you can specialize in your niche of whatever your specialty is, you become that boutique firm. So if I think of New York and Wall Street and all these boutique firms and why they flourish, affiliation is probably the best solution, both to make small and independent and vibrant and nimble, but still having that support mechanism.
2: But then is it still covered and do you think it will still be covered in the long term? by all of these security requirements. I mean, we're really going in the way of requirements. They're not optional anymore.
0: All of the firms that you listed do provide that umbrella. So yes, I do. And of course, Kiger does as well. But I want to be fair to all businesses. The firms that you listed, they all provide that umbrella. And that's important.
1: I was listening to a podcast from the Washington Post about scams. And they are just like, it's just so simple. It's no longer like be suspicious about things. It's like be suspicious of every single email because the flaw in your security system is human as always. And so I found that interesting because it's sort of as you get bigger, how do you monitor everyone on what they do? And maybe that's a thing for small businesses is that we're going to be more aware. We're going to be more handholdy then.
0: I know that larger companies like ours have full-time people. That's all they do is they both watch security, they check security, they test for security, they try to tap into it. I mean, that's a wonderful subject for a podcast. And it's probably why so many businesses look now to either sell or merge or affiliate their business versus just I'm aging out, which is, or I have this client opportunity. Before those were the two common things, aging out or client opportunity. Now it's what you just mentioned. The one thing that I think that works against us in a U.S. mentality or culture is that let's answer that email at one o'clock in the morning because you're tired and you feel like you have to answer every single email. And inadvertently, that's when you might just open that link. So perhaps we all need to slow down. I know I do when I have to really look at things carefully and say, hmm, is this really real? And it's okay to have someone check and say, is this real before I respond to it? And, We have to work against our innate pressures to be on demand 24-7. Yeah.
1: Well, if that wasn't an endorsement for vacations, I don't know what is. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's vacations and shutting down at the end of the day. It is an endorsement to stay off of our devices a little bit more at certain times of the day so that we are just a little bit wiser and I don't know if you've ever seen, now I'm going off on a tangent. uh, Somebody respond to your email that may have had a beverage, an adult beverage. That happened occasionally. And that's a good reason not to do that. Yeah. If you're emailing me
1: Saturday night, I know you're not working that hard. (laughs) I think a lot of people are kind of emerging from this pandemic, kind of looking around and rethinking what they want to do. If you were to give advice to someone, What should they keep in mind for the future or what changes should they think about for their company? You know, they're predicting the great resignation later this fall where everyone just kind of ups and leaves. But a lot of our audience are actually small business owners. And so that's not the same thing of like, oh, I don't like my boss anymore. I'm leaving. It's your boss is you. So what would you give advice to people rethinking their next steps right now?
0: Well, I'm going to start in the UK. In the UK, I just listened to an individual who spoke about potential changes in tax laws coming up in the future, tax laws that were triggered because of the pandemic in terms of selling your business. Right now, if you're thinking of bulking up your business before you sell, you really want to speak to a financial advisor in regards to what the tax implications could be, because you may be better off selling your business smaller and paying a lower percent tax then taking those years to bulk it up, and then this tax law will change. You're going to pay a higher tax, and at the end of the day, you're going to net out with the same amount of money. That's very specific to that particular country. In North America, what you have to look at in terms of selling your business coming out of the pandemic is understanding the proportionality of your business, which was PPE, versus the proportionality of your business prior to the pandemic that wasn't PPE. How quickly are you recovering in 2021 and 2022 back with your traditional sales and your traditional product mix? If you can come back out of that recovery quickly, where you're shifting out of PPE back into the more traditional apparel, beverage wear, product offerings, then your business is worth more. Your business may not necessarily be worth what it was in nineteen but it's certainly worth more if you can shift out of that business. The other thing is when companies are looking to buy distributors, I'm going to take out suppliers because that's a very different segment, but distributors, businesses look at what your future sales potential is. So your proportion of your client mix are 80% of your sales coming from one client. What is the proportion of your client mix? What are the ages of your salespeople or your account executive. People will look at that because they're looking in terms of long-term future. How strong are your technologies? Are you using in-house developed technologies, especially web-based technologies? Or are you using some of the more better known technologies for your offerings because that might actually make it better? And finally, take a look at your contracts. Are your contracts transferable? Or not. So if you have that large corporate program or employee store and that contract is not transferable, you might want to pay attention to that before you sell or you have to like resell that program back to that client because you have a new owner. So those are some things I would suggest that they take a look at. Last one, how much are you really writing off to your company? Are you writing off all your cars, your home, your kid's education? Is your spouse on payroll? Are your kids on payroll? Those types of things. So you want to normalize your expenses in regards to it because we look at all of those things. Are you puffing up your expenses? In some ways, that's great because then we know we can strip some of those things out. Or how lean is your organization? Because if it's super lean, then it's hard to have that added value with the exception of growing sales you mentioned looking at
2: suppliers and distributors separately in terms of buying and acquiring businesses. I've seen an increase in print on demand in our industry lately, and an increase in we just want a low quantity for this one very highly specialized event or campaign. Do you think that we'll see more suppliers and distributors merging going forward?
0: Well, we had a supplier at one time, Sun Graphics, and we found it best for us to focus on what we did best and that would continue to have us have lift in the business. And I think when you have competing resources for the dollars that you have, whether it's a supplier, invest in equipment and machinery and the technologies in the engineering versus the distributor side, which tends to be more the channel to acquire clients you start bumping up. So I think we'll see some of it. I don't know if that is a true trend that will continue on in the future. I could be wrong. What I do think we'll see is three things. One is that there'll be continued stratification where the large get larger, the small continue, in that middle ground there'll be fewer and fewer of the middle ground. It's going to go one way or the other based on the type of book of business. I think we'll see stratification where you have consultative businesses and e-commerce businesses that both go in different directions in terms of how you approach clients. And I think we'll see more e-commerce businesses acquire some of the trappings that look like a supplier, meaning decoration abilities. So may not necessarily be a traditional supplier, but they will invest in how to decorate certain items because an e-commerce business can really churn a real high volume of specific products. And when they do that, then the natural migration then is to get into decoration so that they can lower their cost of goods.
2: Something to watch for.
0: I know, or something to consider investing in if it's your business. We've invested in decoration because of some of our corporate programs. Better to keep a large quantity of blanks that go into all these different programs and then start Decorating the logos in very small quantities that decorate on demand, you're speaking of, but that's a very specific, either it's embroidery or heat transfer, and it's primarily in apparel, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily. Other firms might decide to do it in writing
2: instruments. Laser engraving and digital printing. You mentioned sun graphics in the past tense. Yes. Does that mean that you decided it was not a good business fit? And how did you decide to move away from that?
0: We sold our Sun Graphics operation eight or ten years ago and we sold it to three different companies depending on the actual product that we're selling. In fact, Warwick, they acquired some of our daily date calendar business and some of that business. Other firms acquired different aspects of Sun Graphics. And for us it was just managing competing dollars for investment. Mm-hmm. We had been a manufacturer of diaries and calendars. Geiger is a 145-year-old business and had been producing, had supplier aspects for all of these years. And then we finally made the decision that we're going to be a straight-up distributor. Even though we are doing decoration, but it's a different type of decoration because we're only decorating for our own clients rather than decorating for other distributors. And that's the definition of a supplier, at least right now, is you're decorating and for selling those decorated goods or manufactured goods with decoration to other distributors.
2: Very interesting. But you brought that under the Geiger umbrella, like we were just talking about in
1: terms of on demand.
0: Right.
1: Very interesting. I would say to people as well, if you are bringing in the decoration capabilities, look at the numbers of it. I think a lot of people have bought machines that just sit there idle for so long because they're like, I'm going to save so much money. Mm-hmm. But The skill set of it is different than the functionality of it.
0: (laughs) Oh, you are so right, Kate. I appreciate and honor what suppliers do in regards to decoration because you're right. You have to keep that machine running. You have to have qualified people. And there's this thing called spoilage. Yes. Something is damaged or spoilage that can eat up all your margin that you think you're saving. So you are so, so, so right. You better have those skill sets go in open-eyed because it's not for the naive, for sure. We have wonderful cost accountants and accountants and financial analysts, and they are the first ones to, to really caution us for anything in that direction, for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. Another thing to look into is also maintenance, because I looked into buying a DTG printer for a little bit, and I was like, oh, I could just you know print my spec samples or print whatever I wanted to send to clients, just do this four T-shirt run, because it's you know a very special, important client, and then you're thinking about inks that are drying up in the wells and you're thinking about maintenance. and when you really get deep into those costs, it's very, very different And in the
0: U.S, DEP and OSHA, and it's just a whole different world, so that's why we sold our supplier business that you compete. It competes for both dollars and mindshare, as well as resources. Yeah, I
1: think a lot of people, exactly what we talked about earlier, are looking at becoming the one-stop shop, but it kind of goes back to that attitude of like, there's smaller firms out there who do it better, faster, and cheaper than you can do, and just because you bring it under your umbrella doesn't mean you're going to be better, faster, and cheaper than them. That's true. And it's a skill set skill set for all aspects of what we've been talking about. Find good people and it will be easy for you.
0: Mm-hmm. Andrea, you run into this. Client demand dictates quite a bit because a client themselves will want to pull a D&B on you as a distributor and say, how large are you? And is it a good idea to put my business into a firm that might be greater than the firm's overall net revenues in the previous year? So you have to balance that into mm-hmm. in terms of why does a client choose to do business with a certain company, especially as your clients get bigger?
2: Yes. For some of our distributor listeners who are in the process of growing their businesses, you'll find as you fill out a lot of those new supplier, new vendor forms for some of your clients, they will ask you specifically for references at your other clients. And part of that form will include how much did they purchase from you last year? What was their spend? And what percentage of your annual revenue came from that client? So basically, they're trying to find out, can you handle them? Do you have the cash flow? Do you have the resources? And if they decide that they want to pull their business, are they going to tank your business? So let's go into that.
0: Which is what would cause getting to our original root conversation, why individuals or firms think about, should I affiliate? Should I sell? And there are different reasons to do both. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Exactly. So is there anything
1: else that you think our audience should know that needs to be covered that we haven't asked?
0: Well, perhaps one thing that our audience should think about, if you're thinking of selling your business or affiliating the business, we're talking from the perspective of the acquirer, from a guider to that firm, you really need to be doing your due diligence about the firm you're considering selling to or affiliating with. That is so important because I have seen times where individuals have made a decision to go to a different firm, a smaller firm, a local firm, which there's nothing wrong with it, except that they may not necessarily have the experience to continue that business on for a long time. So do your due diligence, no matter what you're doing, whether you're buying or selling, always make sure that you're choosing the best partner on both cases.
1: Yeah. I feel like we've focused a lot on acquisitions, but mergers are also an option out there for people. Like, do you have a partner who's, same thing, your culture's worked well together and you know they have skill sets you don't and access to markets that you don't. Just you don't have to be bought. And same with other conversations is you don't have to look for private equity money. This industry and industries out there are so much fun and they're changing so much that just because someone else did it doesn't mean that that's the right path for you. And so you can get playful with what you do.
0: Whoever's listening right now, just break the mold and try something different. The affiliate model is a fabulous model. It really is. And there are a lot of great companies. I like to think Geiger is one of them that can provide that umbrella as well.
1: Yeah, we're excited. Well, Joanne, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and indulge all our nerdy questions about everything that's going on and so we really
0: appreciate you and thank you for being part of this with us oh um, and thank you both i'm a fan of both of you and what you're doing and you're breaking the mold and that's a great thing thank you <laughs> thanks Joya. thanks again for listening to this edition of the promo kitchen podcast if you like what you hear you can subscribe to the podcast through itunes or wherever you get your podcasts And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org slash donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.